Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Thanks, Nate. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and want to thank God for those of you who publicly shared your stories this morning. I just told someone during the Connect time, that's the whole point of our gathering, and that we should all just go home now, and they're all like, yes. Um, and I said, well, that was a joke. Just kidding. But no, I do want to thank God for that. And uh, I believe God has a message for us this morning because it's the Word of God. And a lot of what I want to share with you has already been shared this morning from Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 15. But we're all shaped by the promise of some story. It's not just that we're shaped by stories, but the actual promises held out within that story form us, they motivate us, and they inspire us to actually live within that narrative. So, for example, how many of you ever started a movie and didn't watch the end, or started a book and didn't read the end of the book? Was that annoying? Probably, right? Why? Because there's something about the hope that you're wanting at the very end that motivates you to keep watching it. Or if we were to take that into the context of everyday life, everyday life story, the the story that we are motivated by mostly in this culture is some form of what we're just going to call the American dream. And there's obviously lots of different threads and strands that you can pull on the American dream. But why do you and I, whatever strand we're pulling on in that story, why is that story so captivating to us? Why do we, I would even say, subconsciously, even though we know we shouldn't be living according to that story and being shaped by that story, why is it that we keep coming back to that story? Because here's why. The hope that is held out in the American dream, I know in my own heart, still has a tiny, tiny tug. There's a part of me that still wants to be really, really rich. Any of you out there want to be really, really rich? There's still that little hope. And I'm getting older and older, and that hope is fleeting quickly. St. Scott of Chesapeake is getting old. But whatever that is, there's something about that dream that is still captivating. And, and the, the, the hope of that actually motivates us. It gets us out of bed every morning. The seductive nature of the subconscious hope that is the desired end keeps us moving. And what I want to say that the story that we give ourselves to 
actually provides a hope for us that actually motivates us to live in that story. And that motivational hope that is held out in the story of God is all over today's passage. In fact, it's been all over today's gathering. And that hope, that motivational hope of the true story of the world is Jesus. And that true hope is that Jesus is going to make everything sad come untrue. The hope that Jesus brings, as the British people say, he will put the world back to rights. Or as we say in the South, he's going to make everything right, y'all. He's going to put everything right. That's the motivational hope that actually inspires the Christian faith. Hebrews, no, not Hebrews, Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to be in verses 15 to 21 this morning. We have looked at this passage in Matthew 11, 12, and 13, where the opposition of Jesus against Jesus is beginning to rise. The first 10 chapters of Matthew was very flowery and exciting and vivacious because Jesus was doing all these miracles and all these people were following him. And it seemed to be this great grand story that is now beginning to take a shift where there's going to be lots of opposition and that opposition is coming primarily not from the bad guys, but from the good guys, the religious leaders. And they have been now accusing Jesus of healing on the Sabbath and breaking the law twice. And Jesus says in the context of this in verse 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew. But as he was withdrawing, a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about him. How many of you wish that command was true for you this week so you didn't disobey? <laughs> Jesus actually told his followers, don't tell anyone about me. Isn't that weird? Why? This was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And if you have in your Bible here like a set-apart text here, it's kind of like set-apart. It's actually an Old Testament quote. It's actually coming from the Old Testament itself. And we're going to do a lot of work in Isaiah 42 this morning. But it comes from Isaiah chapter 42 where Matthew is quoting the prophet Isaiah who says this, Here is my servants whom I've chosen. The one I love and whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This morning, in this particular passage, as we walk through Matthew together, I want to just point out three points. Number one, the messianic identity. Who is this particular Messiah? And we're going to see not only this messianic identity, but we're going to see number two, the messianic anointing, the spirit of God being upon him. And then finally this morning, we're going to see the messianic mission. And that mission is all around justice and hope. So would you pray with me? Father, help us in these next few minutes to hear from you, to have our hearts encouraged, so that we will be more committed in our heart, in our mind, in our hands, in our feet, in our bodies,
to you, which means more committed to each other. So, Spirit, we ask for you to do this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number one, the messianic identity. He is the chosen, beloved servant. As we look in Matthew chapter 12, it says, here is my servant. He's actually citing, as we saw, a passage from Isaiah chapter 42. And it's interesting here that, and I have on the screen for you, that, that Matthew 12 and Isaiah 42 side by side. They're a little different, and you'll notice that as we go through. But initially, we're identifying this Messiah, this Jesus, as a servant. It's interesting, this word servant actually could mean child or slave or servant. So it's almost interesting that Matthew is identifying Jesus not only as a servant, but as a son, a child. Here is my child, my son. And we have seen already the connection in Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is being baptized and the father proclaims over the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we talked about the understanding of being an identity, of being a son. A son isn't just a privilege, it actually comes with a responsibility, a mission, a purpose. And Jesus is God's son. But here, there's another phrase, another identity of Jesus, and that is the identity of a servant. Where do we get this identity of a servant? It comes from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, on the next slide, uh, I have four different songs. We call them the servant songs. Four different places in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 where the author Isaiah talks about this servant. Isaiah 42, as we're going to see this morning, is he talks about this song, this separated part in Isaiah about a servant who's going to bring justice to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 49, there's another place where this servant is talked about, and he's going to be a light to the nations. Or Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to see the intimate relationship you could read between the servant and Yahweh and God. And then probably the most familiar servant's song is Isaiah chapter 52, which is going all the way to the end of chapter 53, about the lamb that is being led to, a she, to its slaughter, and he will not open his mouth, and it talks about the suffering servants. But the first of these servant songs is the one that Matthew actually identifies. And what is interesting is just as in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his son. He says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And they had this unique relationship Israel did with the God of the universe, the God of Israel. And as a son, they had this mission to actually live in a structured way around the law of God so all the nations would come to know Yahweh. But as we see through the Old Testament, how well did the son do? Not very well. They continued to disobey and they continued to not follow the law. And so consequently, very few of the nations actually came and got to be with Yahweh and to know the God of the universe. And so here comes Jesus, the true son. But you know who else is called a servant in the Old Testament? Israel. Israel's called the servant. 
And what you see in the book of Isaiah is that Israel is being an unfaithful servants. They're not being who they're supposed to be. And now here comes Jesus. And the New Testament writers identified Jesus not as the true, only as a true son, but as the true servants. He is the one who is going to serve Yahweh and bring Yahweh's name to the nations. And this particular individual, this servant we see, is identified in two ways. He's chosen and he's beloved. I don't know if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 13 that says that this son was chosen before the foundation of the world to be slain. He's the son that was slain before the foundation of the world, before the foundation and the frameworks of creation were even established. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a council meeting in which they had determined that this son, this member of the Trinity, would actually enter into the human story and actually become the true servant and the true son. He's chosen. But he also is chosen, as he's chosen, he's beloved. It's interesting, I don't know why the NIV does not translate this way, but the ESV and others do. The, the Matthew's passage, if you go back to uh, the two parallel slides, if you will, in the Matthew one, it says, in whom I delight. The Greek actually says, in whom my soul delights. Why is that significant? Because it actually gives more gravity to the delight and the belovedness of the son and servant in relationship to the father. It's like the very being of God delights in him. And why? Well, we looked in the passage of the baptism when, here is my true son in whom I am well pleased. What's the point? Israel, God's first son, he was not well pleased with. God's first servant, Israel, he's not well pleased with. But here comes what we would call the true Israel, the true servants. And he has this unique identity as being the messianic servant. He's the one who has promised to come. He's the one who's going to bring God's mission to fruition. He's the one who's going to be chosen and uniquely related to the Father. And the Father and the Son, through the Spirit, are going to have this intimate connection and relationship. So much so that God's very being, his soul, is pleased with him. And I think it's important that we spend some time thinking about that relationship and that identity. Because we saw that in the, in the, what were those things called? Markers? No. Values? The 10 values? Being before doing? That your identity determines your mission. Your identity determines how you live. Who you think yourself to be, who you are, dictates what you do with your everyday life. And here Jesus came to fully believe that he was the son, the servant, the chosen beloved one, the Messiah, who would come and do what God wanted to be done that Israel could not do. But this son, this unique son, number two, he's not alone. He's not alone because Isaiah chapter 42 says, I will put my spirit on him. My spirit will be in him, upon him. And what we see is that the spirit is uniquely with Jesus. 
I don't know how you think of Jesus, but like when he's being wrapped in swaddling clothes, do you think he knew what 48 times 748 times 0.4 was? He's like this genius as a baby, and he just started crying because, oh, I'm a baby, I'm a human, I gotta start crying. You know, or, you know, I don't know how you view Jesus, okay? But it says in Luke that he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, just like every other human being did. But what uniquely set apart Jesus from everybody else is the anointing and the indwelling spirit of God that was given to him, and it was given to him in the fullness at the baptism. And Matthew has already identified that this spirit, this messianic anointing, just as the spirit anointed all the kings of Israel, now here comes the true king, and the spirit is going to be the one who actually empowers him to live obediently. He empowers him to cast out demons. He empowers him to heal the sick. The Spirit is the one who is uniquely related to Jesus to give him the power, the authority, the ability to be who he was. How did Jesus have the ability to be the servant? How did he have the ability to be the true son? Because the Spirit of God was upon him. And what we're going to see next week as we come into this picture of Jesus and the power of the Spirit upon him is that he has such power that he can actually cast out demons. That is power. And the Spirit is the one who is anointing him. And we're going to come back to the end. That was the fastest point I've ever done. Point number three. Here is the Son the servant son who's been anointed by the Spirit to do what? What has he been anointed to do? If you look in Isaiah chapter 42 on the right, it's probably hard to tell. I did it in bold, but on the right side there in Isaiah, the word justice is actually used three times. Matthew only uses it twice, but in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1, 3, and 4, it says, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Number two, in faithfulness, He will bring forth justice, and He will not falter or be discouraged till He establishes justice on the earth. Clearly, in Isaiah chapter 42, the mission of this servant is to bring justice to the nations. What does justice mean? There's, I don't know how familiar you are in the current culture and understanding of the American church, but there is a great division going on right now over the word justice. And that division looks something like this, if I could categorize it broadly, and I'm painting very broad strokes. Does that make sense? And I'm not talking about anyone in this room. I'm just talking about people outside this room, okay? So don't get mad at me. It'll be all right. We'll shake hands at the end, all right? Some people on one side of the Christian scale are saying the only thing that matters is that people trust Jesus, accept them into his heart, and they go to heaven, you have the other side of the spectrum who are like, no, what we should be doing is building homes, giving food to the poor, helping the, the widows and all the people, and just being out there doing stuff. So on one side of the world, we have people who are like, the most important thing is evangelism and proclamation of the gospel. You ever heard of these people? 
Over here is everything is not word, but it's deed driven. It's action driven. It's like we actually need to be out there doing things and helping people. Like that is what Christianity is. And so the question is, is how does justice actually fit into the Christian faith? I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this word justice, just in the Old Testament, is used over 200 times. Justice is not a small, minor part to the Old Testament. In fact, it is a, a backbone to the Old Testament. To understand that what Christianity is about is about justice. In fact, the, the whole point of Isaiah 42, the first servant song, is that this messianic servant is going to come and establish justice. So, how do we deal with justice? Well, number one, I think it's just important to define it. Because before we argue over things, let's get clear on some definitions. And I think justice... Biblically speaking, just generally has this idea to treat people with equity, to treat people equally. And when I say it has two ideas, a negative and a positive, I'm not saying negative as in bad and positive as in good, but think of it as two sides of the same coin. It means that we give people the same punishments. Parents, how many of your kids accuse you of injustice? All the time. That's not what you did for him. How come he gets away with everything? Because he's the baby. He's going to grow up and be a spoiled brat. Yes, and you're not, so stop complaining. <laughs> right? Like, there's this injustice that our kids see because we don't treat our kids fairly. And this is the idea of justice that, not just in a family life, but in all of life, that we treat people with the same punishment. We don't treat people differently when it comes to punishment, that, that everyone gets the same rule, the same law, the same justice. Leviticus chapter 24 says, have the same rule for the foreigner as the native. What does that mean? If an Israelite broke the law, he should have the same punishment as if a Canaanite who came into Israel got. They should actually receive the same punishments. But positively, and this is the other side of the same coin, it means to give people the same care and protection. So regardless of if you were an Israelite or a Canaanite or a Moabite, Ruth or any of these other nations that would come in and join Israel and they were there, you were to treat the people with same care and protection. The question is, is who do you want to punish more severely and who do you not want to give the same care and protection to? And I think it, maybe you're better than me, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are people that we're like that with. There are people who we think should get a stricter punishment than us. There are people who think they should not get the same care and protection that I do. Because innate within us is this self Aggrandizement. Um, let's just say. Let's just say we're all, in a sense, narcissists. Okay, I'm not saying you're a narcissist. I'm just saying, do you love yourself? You do. 
And in order to love yourself, you got to put other people down because that lifts you up. And the idea that we treat and want everyone of the same care and protection, sometimes I think we're just fooling ourselves. Let's just do it. I mean, how many of you this week are so excited that some guy is going to get arrested? You don't even know who I'm talking about, do you? Right? And some of you are like, yes! And other of you are like, come on, really? Did he do anything wrong? And you have an opinion about that. And it's not even wrong to have an opinion about it. Does that make sense? And we're not debating it here. I don't care. I really don't. But like the idea that this person that you like or don't like should be treated in certain ways just because you like him better, not because there's actually a law that should be, this is what happens. And so deep within us, there's just this not a true desire for justice. And yet what Christianity is, is that we treat people equally, regardless of race, regardless of what neighborhood you live in, regardless of what sports team you like, that we treat people equally. They get the same punishment. They get the same care. In the biblical world, there was what we call the quartet of the vulnerable, the people in Israel's society that were not treated with the same care and protection that other people were treated with. That quartet were the homeless, no, no, the poor, the immigrants, the widow, and the fatherless. So that when you read through the Old Testament, you'll see regularly laws about making sure that the poor, the nations who come to Israel, the immigrants, the widow who cannot provide for herself and the family and the children who are fatherless, that those people get the same care. What does James say? True religion that is undefiled before our God and Father is to do what? Visit the widow and the orphans. He's actually going to the, the, the people who don't get the same care. And you go to those people and treat them just as you would treat anybody else. Who are, the society, who are the people in our society that are vulnerable? That don't get the same care and protection that you and I get. And those are the people that we treat with equity, that justice be done. In fact, the justice of any society is basically based on how it treats the vulnerable and how it punishes the powerful. Did you catch that? The justice of any society is based on how it treats the vulnerable and judges the powerful. Now, in the broadest sense, Jesus came to completely upheave and completely overturn the societal order where justice generally across the earth is seen to be people who get different rules because they're special and the people who are vulnerable get pushed down. And Jesus says, I have come to change all of that. I have come to bring the fullness of a justice where everyone is loved the same, treated the same, punished the same. And we're not speaking here of a privatistic religion, one that's like, if I just pray the prayer and I get to go to heaven, I'm good. 
No, that gets you into the Christian faith, but then what it means to actually be a Christian is to embody what that new world justice is going to look like in the presence. So the witness of our church is largely dependent upon how you and I together embody what that new world justice that is coming in the person of Jesus is actually being demonstrated in us and through us. And as we do that, the whole goal is we want everyone in our neighborhood not just to have food and clothes and relationships, but we want them to know and love God. So we're going to be a church that we're not finding the balance, okay? You ever met someone who's un- who actually says they're not balanced? No one, no one ever says they're not balanced. Everyone's like, I have the perfect balance of money and fun. I have the perfect balance of word and deed. I have the perfect balance of everything. We're not trying to find a balance. What we're trying to do is say that we're integrating. We're bringing together that we want people to know Jesus. And to know Jesus, they actually have to hear about Jesus. But then we want them to experience the justice that Jesus is going to actually bring. Because if we just tell them about Jesus that they're going to heaven, guess what we're telling them? (laughs) That the new world's not coming. There's something different coming than what most of us believe and have heard about our Christian lives. So as long as the world, the wrong story continues to live out its power, to live out of its privilege, to live out of its political parties, the more and more destruction and chaos is going to breed. But when the church submits to the justice and the belief that Jesus is Lord, then we can actually be freed from a story that is going to enslave us. And this is the mission of the servant again. You think I'm crazy. I just want you to read Isaiah chapter 42 again. He will bring justice. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And he is not going to stop until justice is on the earth. But what's so unique about Jesus is how does he do this? How does Jesus do this? He does it by what Matthew highlights here. Don't tell anybody. We call that the messianic secret. The Messiah is here and it's a secret. And as you hear and as I'm healing you, don't go tell anybody. Why? Because it says in Isaiah chapter 42, he will not quarrel. He will not cry out, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. That's crazy. If someone is going to come and proclaim justice, and we're going to make this world great again, how are they going to do it? Someone caught it. How are they going to do it? By publicly going into the streets and saying, I am here to make the world great again. What does Jesus do? stays away from the streets, tells other people not to tell him, tell others about him. Why? Doesn't that seem crazy? That if I was coming to make everything right, you better believe I'm going to tell you I'm coming to make everything right because I'm going to be loud and in charge and let everyone know my power. 
So why does Jesus say, don't go tell anyone? Number one, he does it partly to fulfill Isaiah, where Isaiah, the the servant, is going to be one who doesn't speak, who's not going to be speak in the sense of like loud, as the humble messianic servant. Jesus is not going to retaliate. He's not going to make threats. In fact, as Peter says, he's going to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Can you imagine a bunch of Pharisees critiquing your life? Maybe you have some contemporary Pharisees around you, religious people who are always critiquing you. I can't believe you're doing this. Why are you doing And what do you want to do to them? I want to like open my Bible and like have a Bible power off. Let's go. Like, right? And what does Jesus do? He's silence. As we see in the fourth servant song, he is silent before his opponents. And it's not that Jesus is afraid to talk. It's not that Jesus is afraid of having people disagree with him. But he's not going to be the one who's going to come in the power and the authority of a king and declare himself to be something. But number two, Jesus says, don't go tell anyone. Because not just fulfill Isaiah 42, but because people would begin to misunderstand his mission. That he wasn't coming the first time to make the world fully right. He came the first time to make God's people right with God and to be able to fulfill their mission of bringing justice to the nations because it wasn't just Jesus who was supposed to do that. It was Israel. Israel couldn't do it. So what did he do? He came so that God's people could actually be the justice of God throughout the earth. And if they began to believe that he was coming this time, they would misunderstand everything that he was coming to do the first time. And so this Messiah told everyone to be quiet so they would not misunderstand, to fulfill what was going on because he would have his word and his power shown at the cross and the resurrection that we celebrate next week. But he's not only going to be quiet, but he's going to be gentle. If you remember a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 11, the only place in the entire gospel account where we hear about Jesus' heart, what Jesus actually is like, he identifies his heart one time, and it says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the Messiah, the one who is not going to be out there declaring himself and making everything right and doing everything boldly and boisterously and arrogantly. He's going to be quiet. But in his quietness, he's also going to be gentle. He uses two analogies to speak about the gentleness of this messianic servant. Number one is a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed. This is just like a twig that's kind of snapped, but it hasn't quite fallen off. It's almost valueless. There's no point of it. And what does Jesus say? When you're broken, I'm not just going to come and rip it off and destroy you. But he also used the analogy of of a wick, like a smoldering wick. He will not snuff out. He's like... 
not going to come and like just blow the last little bit of your life and your light out. The very point being made by these figures of speech of, of a wick and of a bruised reed is that surely like any other royal figure who is coming to claim justice on the earth would have smashed the reed and blown out the wick. And yet Jesus is so far from smashing the mighty, so far from actually coming and destroying the last little bit of light that you have that he's going to do neither. He's actually going to be right next to you. He's going to be with you. God's answer to bringing justice on the earth is not to bring more power and oppression upon people, but to actually be with the people in their oppression. The servant came not to be served, but to serve. And he's going to renovate. He's going to change the whole world through his quiet, gentle humility as he comes and, and lives with you and be with you and experiences the same things you've experienced. And this is like the uniqueness of Christianity is that the God of Christianity actually entered himself into the story and took on all the things that was tempted in every way like you and I were tempted. And he went through death and he went through suffering and he had his father die on him before he was gone. Like he experienced the things that you and I experienced. So he's not going to blow out your lights. And you might feel like you're the reed that's just bent and broken and you're barely holding on. And Jesus isn't going to be like a mighty ruler and just dismiss you. He's coming right alongside of you because he's bringing justice to the earth. And you know who's part of the earth? You are. And he's going to give you the same care and the same treatments that he gives everybody. He doesn't come up to the pastors and be like, oh, you guys are special. He doesn't come up to the presidents of seminaries and be like, ooh, I need to get in luck with you and get in friendship with you. No, what he actually does is he comes to everyone and treats everyone the same. Jesus came to serve you. And the true story of the world tells us that what Matthew is highlighting is that he came to bring justice. And the last phrase in Matthew chapter 12 says this, in his name, the nations will put their hope. When God comes back in the person of Jesus and makes everything right, he will bring a justice where everyone is treated equally, with love, with value, and the hope of the story is that this passage is actually true. The hope is that one day you will be treated like everyone else. You will be loved by a father and a son and a spirit equally. And all the earth, when it is living in that way, will rejoice. And there will be love and, and gladness and, and celebration. That's the motivation of the hope that gets us through the hard days. That's the motivation when you feel like you are the bruised reed or your light's about to be snuffed out. That's the hope that one day God sees you and is going to be with you 
He's going to meet you. So what hope do you have that motivates you? Father, help us this morning to be people who put our hope that your justice will be across the globe. Help us to see that you, because of Jesus, treat us equally and fairly, and one day that will be just what all of life is like. And Father, as you show us through Jesus, your love to us, that you would help us to show that love to the vulnerable, to the people who we think should be treated differently than us. May Redemption Church continue to embody the justice that's coming in the new world together. So that people will come to know you. They'll come to experience your love and your life and your light. So God, help us be those people. And we just want to pray for those people this week that we'll have the opportunity to show that love to, speak that love to, that even right now you'd be working in their hearts to draw them to yourself. That next week we come back and say we've seen people turning from darkness to light. So God, I pray that you'll help us this week to be bold. And this week to be bold not just in speech but in action. So that we might be your people, your witnesses here in the places we go. So we thank you for that. We look forward to seeing you save people through our life together here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.